Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book artist and jolly good chap, Jason Lennox, about what comics he would take into an alien invasion apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, the Comic Scene Comic Club. Available from just £5 a month, you can get monthly issues of the History of Comics 1930-2030, to monthly issues of the brand new Shift comic anthology, and two Comic Scene specials per year. To find out more and subscribe to the Comic Club, visit comicscene.org. Also, on a side note, if you do enjoy the show today, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. Merci beaucoup. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Jason Lennox. How's it going? Hey, good morning, Sam. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. It's a it's a bright sunny day over here in the UK, and I believe that you've had a little bit of snow your way in, in uh, Pennsylvania in, in the in, in United States of America. It is snowing. It is gray. It is drab. It is it is it looks like it looks like we're in a I don't know some kind of Arctic uh, Arctic mess. That's what we're in right now. Not night. <laughs> Nah, it's tough, man. I mean, as I was say, saying to you before before we started recording, I used to live in Vermont, so I know kind of what it's like when you do kind of get, you know, half a foot or a foot of snow overnight and just the hassle that it brings. So yeah, I can, can sympathise for sure. It, it is nasty for sure, no doubt. 100% man. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for being here today with us. Um, and for anybody that hasn't come across you just yet, uh, what do you do in the world of comics? So uh, I've been uh, what I would consider a professional, which I always define as getting paid for art uh, for about a decade now. And nice. I have I have made uh, 10 books and Lords of the Cosmos 4 is number 11. Uh, three of those were art books. The rest were comic books that I self-published. So I've been doing that since around 2011. And uh, I also have done a pile of freelance work. I make prints. I try to do as much original art as I can. I, I try I try as best as I can to avoid doing fan art. So I like to do a lot of original art. So people know me for a few things besides my self-published comics. I like to do a lot of mythology artwork. I think I have about 30 posters of uh, Greek, Norse, and uh, Egyptian mythology. I've always been, since I was a kid, into that. So I like to try to explore those uh, areas visually. Um, I've done a lot of uh, public domain book art for books that I like. So the project that I'm working on now is a gigantic poster of Machiavelli's The Prince. Um, I've done a lot of stuff from like 1984, Animal Farm. Uh, do androids, you move electric sheep. So I like to do, I guess, a lot of dystopian uh, literature. And then another thing that I'm, I'm fairly well known for uh, is I've done a lot of work uh, in the satanic uh, genre and uh, the occult. So I have a, a pretty awesome following uh, in the worldwide satanic community. Uh, and I have some videos going on this week with the Satanic Temples cooking show for their Lupercalia specials that they're doing uh uh, for the next couple of days. So, uh, yeah, I, I have some stuff on satanic TV, so that's exciting right now. So those, those are some of the things. That's amazing. Yeah, no. And then I think, uh, 
two just kind of uh, interesting projects that, that I'll spotlight because they're they're kind of still fresh in my mind is um, I've done a lot of work for uh, Virgil Abloh. Uh, well, I say a lot. I've, I've done three projects for him, uh, two fashion, uh, one with music. So Virgil uh, is the fellow that started Off-White, the clothing brand uh, in Italy. And uh, I did some stuff. One thing was in a runway show. I designed some art for a jacket. <laughs> Um, so that was, wow. that was interesting. And that's, that's definitely not some, some people know that I've done it, but I don't know that I'm really known for it. Uh, and then I did, uh, I did a gigantic poster for a, a professional dominatrix named Lady Vi in uh, Seattle, Washington, um, to, uh, help her, uh, refurbish an actual dungeon, uh, at her house. Wow. So, yeah. That's, no, wild, that, man. That's, that's, that's a pretty wild project. And, uh, so I, I've kind of gotten a, a little toehold in that community too. Uh, for artwork as well. Uh, and she found me because she identifies as a Satanist and, and knew a lot of the work that I did in that community. So those are just some interesting, you know, kind of one-off projects that people may or may not know me for, but yeah, there you go. Exceedingly interesting, Jason. That's absolutely fascinating. And yeah. of course you've got a uh, Kickstarter going at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Tell so us a little right bit now. more about that. So Lords of the Cosmos has been my ongoing series that, that I've been working on with uh, my two partners in crime, uh, Jason Palmatier and Dennis Fallon. Uh, they are both writers. Uh, Jason lives locally in State College and Dennis lives in Los Angeles, California, and he does work in TV and film writing scripts. Um, so he is, he is in that world. Um, but we're all kind of 80s kids and we're all 80s toy and cartoon and comic book geeks. Um, and what Lords of the Cosmos is... Um, so I guess this is my elevator pitch is that we took all the things that we liked as kids, which in a nutshell would be things like Masters of the Universe, uh, Thunder the Barbarian, uh, Thundercats, Flash Gordon. Um, mm-hmm. I always like to throw in Black Star because it was a really kind of weird niche cartoon from filmation around that time that doesn't get a lot of mm-hmm. press. And they were all kind of like a science fiction barbarian type genre. So around 2015, uh, I read a new issue of DC's uh, take on Masters of the Universe and I didn't like it and I ran into Jason at work and we started talking and I threw the pitch at him and realized he was a writer that was into the same stuff I was growing up and then we he he asked to bring Dennis in and then the three of us started to mind meld about what that would be so what it is is a magic technology world that has been rocked by warfare for a very long time um going over centuries and in the current times there are the lords of the cosmos that are kind of like the hero team and there's the disciples of umex who are the villain team and they are starting up another war uh, across poor planet aiden where the civilians are just the victims that are caught in the middle and the book allows us the freedom to have everything from cyborgs uh techno wizards talking cats uh, heroes with talking swords and villains with cybernetic uh, tentacle hands. So uh, pretty much anything goes, whether it's the people having uh, vehicles and jet planes or magic swords. And uh, it's a pretty wild book. So, you know, we we draw on that uh, feelings we had as kids getting toy catalogs in the mail from department stores, uh, Saturday morning and after school cartoon series, you know, G.I. Joe, Transformers. Um, so there's little nods to that. Like we always, we liked how the Transformers did 
logoed everything. So we made a hero logo and a villain logo. So all of our characters have a logo on them at all times. It's one of the few things we, we were sticklers about is they have to have their logo because that's how you would have branded it in the 80s. So even yeah. uh, in the new issue, we did a Saturday morning cartoon ad for the Lords of the Cosmos with an entire made-up cartoon slate of made-up TV shows that we thought would have been in the 80s. Um, every issue has a toy on the back cover. So the back cover of each issue, including number four, the back cover is what you'd have seen on a shelf at a department store, like an actual toy package where a guy has been building us. Eric D has been building us actual toy sculptures. Um, some of them are as big as 14 inches high. We photograph them. My buddy Keith Crick photographs them. And then uh, another fellow, Jared Brown, that I know creates the packaging. And then the inside back cover is the back package of the box. So if you remember, especially with Transformers toys, they would have like a power chart and like a little description of what the character is. So the back cover of all of our issues is the front back of a toy box from the Lords of the Cosmos toy series. That is so, so cool, man. <laughs> so we really want to try to give you a great comic book, but we also want to try to tie in those touchstones that if you were reading, if you were, if Lords of the Cosmos would have been a huge toy property in 1983, these are the things that you would have seen with it at that time. That's awesome, man. And of course, people can just search for Lords of the Cosmos on um, on Kickstarter. Uh, yeah. But so, so that everyone knows, the, the link is in the show notes, so you can click through straight there. And, and speaking of which, where else can people find you online? So we'll run through it as, as, as promptly as possible. So my main website that I've used for years is just jasonlenox.com. And it's L-E-N-O-X, um, not two N's, just one. Um, the Kickstarter's pinned to the top right hand of that website if you want to just go there. So on Facebook, I'm Jason uh, Lennox Illustrator. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Lennox Artist. And then I have my Etsy store where you can go buy a lot of my prints and you can buy old back issues and things like that and T-shirts. Um, that's Lennox Art Emporium on Etsy. So those, those are the primary places to find me online. Um, and the Kickstarter's all over those things on Facebook and Twitter. It's been to the top on Instagram. It's like the last 30 posts. So if you find any of those things, you, you'll find the Kickstarter. 100%, man. Awesome. And, of course, all of those links are in the show notes, as I mentioned before, everybody. So go go follow Jason as we talk. Uh, now, now, all of that aside, um, I do have some bad news for you. Um, yeah. And that... That is, on top of the current pandemic that we're living through, um, aliens have just invaded the East Coast of America. Um, and my, my first question for you is, what is your action plan for survival? My plan would be to get as far away from people as I could, uh, which there's more and more people, it seems, all the time. Um, because not only would I be afraid of the, the alien invasion, but I would be afraid of the people and what they would do. I've watched too many movies, right, Sam? Like I've seen too many yeah. movies and I know that the people are as big of a problem as these menacing invaders. So if we had to go that way, I would probably try to think of where I could go that would be out of the way that I could protect myself at. Um, and if I really wanted to push it, Near my house, there is a cave that has been a tourist attraction for a long time. I might even think about going there to hunker down like I'm in some kind of Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Now, the issue there is food and water. But just to if I had to go somewhere to like escape detection and be protected, uh, a cave that's who knows how old, hundreds of thousands of years old is, is probably as good as any. Right. A hundred percent, man. 
Um, and I assume you, you'd be taking your family with you. Yeah, no, we would take them, and I'm sure my kids would uh, rat us out by screaming and complaining the entire time. But yeah, no, it would be rough. Um, it's 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 always a it's it's a huge question, uh, you know, with, with those scenarios. And, and I, I've been a huge fan, uh, I, I think, since I was a kid for what I would call post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic uh, scenarios, literatures, and film. Um, I mean, going back to in the 80s, discovering films uh, like Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead by George Romero on VHS. Um, so, no, there are always amazing scenarios that I would uh, run through. But, you know, if it wasn't a cave, I would start thinking of what houses I could go to um, that may not be uh, in use, like vacation homes and things like that. Uh, but then, you know, what if you go there and there's somebody already there and they don't want you there, you know? So it's just definitely a cave might be the best place to go because maybe no one's thinking about the cave. Nice, man. And I can imagine you with your family uh, in the cave, um, kind of, you know, around a campfire um, and uh, your children ask oh. you about your your comic uh, career. And <laughs> they start off by asking you, what's the first comic you remember enjoying? First comic I remember enjoying and and uh, was Grew the Wanderer two, and I remember I got that at a Walden Books at a mall in Southeast Pennsylvania off a big spinner rack. And Grew the Wanderer two was written by Sergio Argones, who was a staple in Mad Magazine for years. And uh, yeah, he was he was great. And it it's just that particular issue that stands out for you. I mean, that's the one that I, I mean, that, that was my first book. So, I mean, I, I still right. remember it. I remember the cover. Um, it's, right. it's an outstanding issue. Um, Sergio has an amazing, simplistic cartoonist art style. Um, but yeah, no, I, that's the one that sticks out for me is like my first book that really turned me on to comic books. And how old are you when you pick this up? We could look it up, but I think I was seven. Seven. Because we can look at the publication date of the book, but it was Grew the Wanderer yeah. 2 from Epic, which was a sub-imprint, excuse me, of Marvel uh, at the time. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, and so at that age, were you drawing? Yeah, no. My mom told me that I was born in 75, and she said that she remembers when I was a very small child, she, she said she remembers drawing things for me with crayons. And she said I smacked her hand, took the crayon, corrected it, whatever she was making. And I gave it back to her with the crayon. Wow. Um, so I, I, you know, that I, I don't remember, but she told me that. And then I know that when I was in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher uh, spoke to my mother and said that Jason really needs instruction in the arts outside of school. And he referred my mother to uh, an artist named Elaine Renna, who had a studio and I was taken there. And Elaine said, I don't work with uh, little kids this young. And we left. And then uh, my art teacher, who, who was at the elementary school, called and said, no, I really want you to spend some time with this kid. And I was taken back for an afternoon to just spend time in the studio drawing. And then they, the, Elaine said that we, they wanted me back every day, every day or a day a week. So I was there every week for a couple hours till I graduated high school for like 13 years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, um, no. So, so I did that. Um, I went to a scholarship art program in high school called Governor's right. School for the Arts, which you, you lived at for the summer. It was a state program that no longer exists. But yeah, that, so that's kind of been a lifelong thing. Brilliant. And so during that time, obviously, um, there's kind of 
a, a bit of conflict perhaps let's say between fine art and comic book art let's mm. say um and uh did you did you feel that during that time at all or were people very accepting of the fact that you know you like comic books and um you know it's changed a lot i remember mm. uh i even remember being in a class like some kind of uh it might have been like a art history class and I, I remember i wrote a paper about frank frazetta the, the 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 granddaddy of like science fiction fantasy painted art right um and i assume i assume for this discussion sam you know who i'm talking about frank frazetta yes correct? yes, yes. And I, so i wrote this thing about frank frazetta and i was really proud of it and this might have been like 1990 and i remember the teacher said uh, this guy is just trash this this isn't art and and i was like oh you know, so I mean, like in the whole world of like comic book fantasy, like right? I mean, if you have like a pyramid of like the top dogs, you know, he might, you know, probably Kirby Frazetta. There's kind of that elite peak of like they're not even like great guys; they're more like legends, mm-hmm. right? Where it was like, oh, one of the top dogs in that you know prescribed genre that you identify with is trash. Yeah. So so. But but that was 31 years ago, you know, so it's like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of this has changed where it's like, even like, you know, ima- again, imagine if in 1990, you said, hey, I want to dress up like Joker and go to a convention. I don't even know if that was a possibility. Now it's who does cosplay on, you know, the E-network. So I think a lot of this stuff has become more acceptable. I think society's become more accepting of just of just diversity and different things. But um, yeah, there was always you know, kind of a, there's fine art and then everything else is kind of considered trash, you know, disposable junk. Um, mm. But for, for me more so, uh, there was more of a conflict between trying to do art for a living and getting a job in the business world. Um, and I, I remember uh, the, the bigger discussion with our family was, should you go and get a more traditional degree in business or go to art school? And, and I actually ended up going and getting a traditional degree in business. And I have worked in the business uh, management and commercial sales world for uh, 24 years now. So I have done that and I've always done art as a sideline. Um, It's gotten bigger in the last 10 years. So at this point, it's kind of like I have two jobs. I have my regular day-to-day job where at this point I sell heating and air conditioning equipment to contractors and facilities. And I've been doing that for five years. Um, but then I have Jason Lennox, the art business, which is an entirely separate thing that goes on uh, in every you know waking moment I can squeeze it in. Um, you know, uh, and when I got out of college, I didn't do as much art as I've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, and I think it was just kind of where I was in my life um, at that time. Uh, even though I, I had a lot of training and, and you know natural ability to do it, I, I kind of stopped because I think I was focusing more on, on you know the 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 rat race nine to five. Uh, I'm 45 now. There's times that I kind of regret doing that. There's times that I wonder what would have happened if I would have gone uh, to get a full time art uh, job and, and an art degree. Um, now, on the one hand, part of those arguments are academic because you can't go back and redo it. Um, but I've done well in the traditional working world. It's, it's, it's provided me a lot of, uh, creature comforts and income, which gives you freedom. So recently I, I spoke with uh, an artist and shame on me. I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, it's interesting at this point with you as an artist, your art exists in a completely free zone because you're not doing it for a living. Your art isn't how mm-hmm. we turn on the lights. 
So they said your art, even though it's not full time, is very interesting because your art exists in a zone of complete freedom like a wild animal. But like Jason, the artist, is saying, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do and wherever it takes me, whether it makes money, which it does from time to time, or if it does not make money and I do it for enjoyment. And they said your art is really fascinating to me because it's untethered by the demands of a family and a home and a mortgage and all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have a tremendous understanding of business and small business operations, marketing, accounting, uh, and selling, and that you run your art, your art business on a very tight level versus some artists that just may have no understanding of how the business world works. So, um, you know, at this point in my forties, I probably am a little bit of a, an odd hybrid with how I kind of came into doing a lot of art, kind of took a hard turn into the business world. And then a lot of my art to kind of flourish in its own free space alongside that business world, uh, job, uh, thing. So that's kind of a, a, a quick, let's run through the Jason story in five minutes, if that makes sense. A hundred percent, man. And that's a really good point. The fact that I think the, the likes of Kickstarter have really allowed a lot of kind of, um, artists that do have kind of regular full-time jobs to flourish yeah. um and at the same time kind of yeah have that freedom of being less uh constricted by a big publisher for instance mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's a, that's a brilliant point and i think we're, we're in a really exciting time with with comics um particularly with kickstarter getting bigger and bigger year upon year um sure and uh, no, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about what the future holds in, in terms of comics. And uh, well, yeah, no, it's great. I was an early adopter in Kickstarter, and, and I'll kind of give you my mm. my thought. I, I love Heavy Metal Magazine. I think it's uh, I think it's just one of those cornerstone kick ass uh, publications. And uh, when I when I started to really ramp up my art game around 2010 2011, because I wasn't doing it very much as I mentioned, I kind of missed it. Um, I created two spec stories, full color, one was five, one was 12 pages. And I submitted both to Heavy Metal um, because I wanted, I felt they were good enough to be published. And look, that's a matter of opinion, whatever. And <clears throat> I sent them to Heavy Metal and I was very excited to be part of Heavy Metal, which I'm sure a lot of people are because it's a big deal. Mm. And uh, I never heard anything. And then I followed up with them and uh, I actually have a communication where they said, hey, uh, we're really backed up. Um, it may not be 10 years till we can publish these. Thanks. And, and I remember reading it and thinking, well, either this is the truth and I hope I live long enough to see this maybe happen. Right. And then you're looking at a calendar. It would have been like 2021. It would have been this year. Right. Uh, or, right. or th they don't want to use it because it's not good enough or they don't like it, whatever it is. Right. Art's uh, in the eye of the beholder. And that's their way of saying no. Right. Like, Hey, I'll, I'll call you Sam. Right. And, right, yeah, and, and, and I was I, I kind of read it and I, I remember I was a little bit crestfallen because because I'd put a lot of work into these things and, and I thought they were good. Right. And I, I had a little bit of awareness of crowdfunding because I'd backed uh, a couple things in like 2009, 2010 uh, through some friends that did acting. And I thought, well, you know what? If I'm waiting for someone to carry my bag, basically. And like, take me to where I want to go. I'm going to be like a skeleton collecting cobwebs, 
Right. And it's no, like, it's no knock on heavy metal. I mean, it's just their editorial procedure. I mean, if they didn't feel it was good enough, it didn't, it didn't cut it, but I wanted to get it in people's hands. Right. And, and it took me a while, about a month. And I remember thinking, well, if I'm waiting for others, the only person that really cares about me, if you really get to the brass tacks is me. So why don't I just make my own book and print it and try to take it out to the people. And, uh, I reached out to a couple places. I found a comic book show. I found a printer and I put my book together and I started taking it out and just meeting fans. And that was around 2012. And uh, that would have been nine years ago. And, and that was kind of where it started to say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait for somebody else to give me success because if you want it, you got to go get it yourself. And ever since then, I have taken it to the streets, is you know, virtual, physical streets, shows, Kickstarter, printing books, building a clientele, building a mailing list. Where, you know, that the last you know nine years since that kind of moment of saying we're we're not going to help you, and you're like, okay, well, you know what, I'm going to help myself because I believe in me and I want to do more, and I I like what I'm doing, and I'm going to get it out to people, and take care of yourself because again, if you're waiting for others to do it you know, you're going to wait. And here's the thing. I appreciate being on your show, but, it, but if you, if you think about it, I, I reached out to you and I reached out to a bunch of uh, podcasts and media people to say, I want to talk to you, please let me on your show to spread my message. I'm a good guest. I have a positive message. And, you know, hopefully I do a great job and this is a great appearance and you like what I'm doing And in the future. Maybe you'll say, Jason, we want to have you back on the show. And that's awesome. But if I was just sitting at my house saying, geez, I sure hope that people want to interview me. It would nothing would happen. So you know what I mean. You have to get off your couch, or maybe sit on your yeah. couch with a laptop, right? But part of it is, <laughs> hey, I got something to say. I'm not going to wait for you to call me, Sam. I'm going to go, Sam, Sam, Sam. Put me on the show. So part of it is being a little bit uh, aggressive to say I want to get my message out. No different than a person running for a political office to say I want to be at your club. I want to talk to your voting constituents. I want to talk to your union, whatever it is to say, I got something to say. And the people that I feel that are successful really at anything are the people that aren't afraid to say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not waiting for you. I'm going to come, I'm going to get out and I'm going to, I'm going to find it and I'm going to bring it. And I've been doing that now for nine years. That's awesome, man. That's such a great message to all the creators out there yep, that might be it. kind of getting rejection letters after rejection letters from publishers. And it's like, well, you know, just don't wait for permission to get out there and go nope. get it, you know. And, and go get it. And, and here's it. The, 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 I'm sorry, Sam, I've spoke over you. It's okay. No, no, I was just saying go get it. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. Not everyone's going to like what you do, but if you believe, if you believe yeah, in it yeah. and you believe it's a good thing and it's, it's right and true, then go get it, man. I mean, go do it because it, again, waiting for other people for your success is a, is a recipe for failure. Now, look, at some point, you know, does what I'm doing become big enough or noticed by someone that, that someone does say, Hey, Jason, we are, you know, X, Y, Z, we want to, we want to put more money in your hands and do something else. Hey, that's awesome. Right. But you know how those people notice you? Cause you're out mixing it up that they yeah. see you everywhere. They see your work. You're bringing in more and more people because, because they'll notice you. So it's, it's really about even earning that respect to say, Hey, look at my fan base, look at my workload, look at my resume. Um, 
there, there's a, a couple guys, and, and shame on me, I can't think of their names uh, here in the morning. My coffee hasn't kicked in yet. Um, they, that they do a book about a zombie, and they've gotten some real notoriety in the last few years, but they've been hustling for about a decade, and they were laughing with me at a convention. They said, yeah, the, the, ne- the, next, the guy who's the next big thing has been doing it for 10 to 15 years before anybody cares. Yeah. And, and I think they're right. You know, by the time that mm-hmm. someone becomes a big deal, they just didn't show up. They've been grinding for years to, to get to get to that point. Where I was like, oh, he's the new, you know, Sam's the new thing. Really? Well, he's been hustling. He hasn't just showed up today. <laughs> exactly, man. You're an overnight success. Um, an overnight success is a product of a decade's worth of work, really. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, um, going back to the cave and the campfire, yeah. um, your, your kids ask you, uh, what's the funniest or the comic that made you laugh out loud the most? Um, for sure. My mom, uh, when I was a kid at the grocery store, would buy me a Mad Magazine every time she went to the grocery store. And I probably have about 100 issues of Mad. Um, they don't even print Mad Magazine anymore. They, they pulled the plug on the print book, but I still have all of them in, in big long boxes. And those Mad Magazines, I mean, the artists that, that did them were so talented doing the uh, you know caricature work and the parody work. Um, Sergio did the little margin cartoons that those comics, you know, snappy answers to stupid questions that those books just always made me laugh. And I I can't pick an individual one out because this as a collection, they're great for sure. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's not it's not the uh, first time that Mad Magazine has appeared in this section of the show. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're amongst great company there. Um, yeah, now, yeah, switching sure. gears, um, what's the saddest or most upsetting comic that you've read? I had to think about this question. Um, and uh, before the show, we, we, we kind of touched on this because that, that challenged me. And, and I'm going to kind of re- rehash what I'd said to you off the recording is that mm. – comic books by the nature of their serial nature and their corporate involvement tend not to let really sad things happen so superman dies then he's back you know the flash dies then he's back so we we, we've cheated ourselves out of a lot of emotional moments me personally i think the greatest book ever written is the odyssey and i think one of the great things about it is there is no odyssey too it just ends right we, right. we don't, we don't, and all the things that happen in the book are permanent, right? The, 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 the suitors get killed by Odysseus. They don't come back for the revenge, right? And I think the permanence of that book is what gives it a lot of its staying power. So I thought about something that upset me in comics, and I realized that perhaps the most upsetting thing that still upsets me when I see it as the film or I read it is the character of Rorschach in uh, Watchmen. I think Watchmen's a great book. I really enjoy Rorschach. I think there's something appealing about that character uh, mm-hmm. that he's so well written. And I think he's violent. I think he's twisted. The character was always written to me that he had some sort of, uh, you know, mental uh, problem that maybe he had a, a learning disability or something of that nature, but he had a heart of gold. And I, I, to mm-hmm. me, he's a very, he's a character that just appeals to a core sense of, like I want to like that guy, even though he does things like he cuts the guy's arms off and all that stuff in the jail. Like he tries to do good. Um, and then he realizes at the end of Watchmen, like what's going on and in and, and his, in his moral code, right. Which is kind of this simplistic right and wrong world. He's like, you guys are all wrong. 
you you guys are the bad guys, and I'm not going to let it ha- Like, I'm going to tell. Um, and they tell him to knock it off. Like, they tell him, like, no, compromise your 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 feelings. Like, this is for the greater good. And he's like, I'm not doing it. And they, boom, they disintegrate him. And that always has struck me as, as a very sad and, and permanent ending because, in, in my mind, like, Watchmen is just the Alan Moore... Uh, Dave Gibbons book where it's like, no, the, the, the man who's the one good man in the book, he's dead. We just blow him up because he doesn't want to go along with the system. Yeah. And because yeah. he has this, you know, in my mind, heroic, noble, tragic end. And uh, I, I think they're still doing. I, uh, I think I just literally saw this week on Twitter that there's a new Rorschach series. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So, I mean, to me, like yeah. I, 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 I refuse to acknowledge that. I don't believe that there's more Rorschach stories because one, it cheapens the work that was already done and destroys the emotional impact of it. And I think the fact that 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 is a sad and emotional ending, and then it gives impact when his journal shows up at the, at the crazy conspiracy, you know, right wing newspaper thing at the end of the book. Right. Um, Like to me, that's just sad because we we have a noble character and he has, he literally in my mind has a tragic comic book death, but it still is convoluted because is Osmania's doing the right thing by killing people to stop, you know, it it gives you a lot to think on. And that's why it's such a great book because you can still sit and think about it and wonder who's right, who's wrong. But I think to me, as far as comic books, that was sad. It's just the nature of that was very sad. So there's my big moment about sad comics. Yeah, totally, man. It is. It's just so tragic that somebody that had such strong principles and and was right, you know, sure. um, ended up being killed. And but like, is was Ozymandias was his uh, view the greater good or is the greater good a good thing? I don't know. It's but that's the brilliance of of Watchmen and kind right. of you know the the conflict that it creates in you. Um, well, that's why it's so great. <laughs> right. And, the, and that all these years later that you and I can have a, a, a cogent discussion about it and not really fight about, it, but just kind of think about what did that mean? And mm-hmm. like, there isn't, there, I don't know that there is an answer, you know, but nah, there it, isn't. It, it, his ending was tragic because I liked Rorschach. Um, yeah. I liked him for all of his faults and weirdness. I felt he, he was a, a character that you could really feel was real. And then mm-hmm. for all faults, you, you felt that he was doing his best to be good. Totally, man. Totally. Now back, back, back to the cave and the campfire. Um, yeah. Your kids asked the next question, which is, "What's the scariest or most for- horrifying comic that you've read?" So there's two that that come to mind. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is a Ledroit, and, and forgive me, I'm pretty sure it's Pat Mills, and it's called uh, Requiem, and it's a French book. And it's fully painted, and it's this bizarre vision of hell where it's a reverse version of Earth, and every famous evil person and Satanist in history is like in hell. And there's like werewolves, there's Nazis, there's vampire knights, and it's this completely realized, insane version of hell where there's like an adventure. And uh, Mills and the Droid uh, go out of their way to build this believable, horrific world of, of, you know, cannibals and, you know, fighting for blood for the vampires. And the more evil you are on Earth, the higher you are in hell. And it's just a very disturbing series. 
Um, and sadly, it's never ended, right? It goes like 11 volumes and there's, there's more to be done. And uh, I don't know. I hope they finish it. But it's definitely a creepy book. It's all oil painted, water painted, whatever it is. It looks gorgeous. Um, and I would say the other book that really disturbs me, and we'll, we'll go back to the Alan Moore world, is I, I've always been a huge fan of the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Cthulhu Mythos books. And about seven years ago, something like that, it became public domain. And I think one of the really exciting things for the Lovecraft property was when it became public because anyone can do it. And mm -hmm. Alan Moore wrote a book called The Courtyard, which was a one shot. And then he did a four part miniseries called Neonomicon. And a lot of people did not like those books. There was a lot of vocal complaining about them because they were disturbing. And I was like, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm glad they're disturbing because that's what you want, right? If we want to talk mythos, yeah. I want to be disturbed. <laughs> They are uncomfortable books to read. Um, they are graphic, they are violent, and they are unsettling. And I think they're incredibly well-written. And I think he took the mythos creatures and legends, and he made a very scary modern story that fits in very well with all the original stories and all the things that have come with some of the great creators that have done uh, Lovecraft-based stuff. So, I mean, uh Neonomicon in the courtyard, man. They're 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 creepy. They are just creepy, disturbing books for sure. <laughs> Straight out, sure. man. And uh, Alan Moore is the master of creepiness. So, <laughs> oh, oh, and and it's an It's there's a lot of ambiguity. It's very similar to Watchmen because even those yeah. books end, and you're like, wait, is the person a victim? Is the person a hero? Is the person a, like you? You don't really. What's know. the moral of the story? Right. You, like, <laughs> there like, isn't the one. <laughs> yeah. The moral, what's the moral of the story? The Odyssey. I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah. This guy, he, they go to the guy's wife gets snatched. They go to get the wife back, and then they end up in this crazy adventure where the guy that causes it gets everyone killed and goes home and kills everyone and says, "Get out of my house." Yeah, no exactly, more. man. And that, that's how the Greeks did it, though, wasn't it? It was like yeah. it's just tragedy because life is tragedy. It's chaos. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, media, especially U.S. media, there's always this kind of moralistic, like the good guy wins, and and I think it's refreshing right. to read people right. more. Uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, because they just don't do things that way, where it's like, what, 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 what is the moral? They're, like to, to the Neonomicon and the courtyard, there is no moral. <laughs> like right. it, it's, it, I mean, you could read it three different ways. It's a disturbing, horrible book. You know, look at Watchmen. What's the moral? I don't know. It's, what, what, what do you want it to be? Like, it, it's very hard to yeah. fill it, but, but I appreciate that because it's a different storytelling movie. Yeah, the Greeks, it's all about tragedy. It's just life's a mess. Exactly, man. Exactly. Uh, now, uh, moving on to my favorite question, and that is, what is your favorite cover? So I thought about this, and I have I have three. Um, one I'm looking at spray on my wall. Uh, X Men, Uncanny X Men, two seventy five triple gatefold cover by Jim Lee. Uh, hands down, I think that could be one of the best straight up superhero uh, covers mm -hmm. ever made. Um, it's just great work. Um, it's just, it's his style. It's, it's very, it's like the pinnacle of nineties comics. And I just, it's where yeah. I grew up reading a lot of that stuff. And I think it's great. Uh, battle angel Lita, which is a book that Viz put out in the U S uh, and, uh, he did a big poster, Yukito Kashiro that had the main character like crawling, but she's half falling apart in machine parts and it's all watercolored and she has wings right. and she's like a teenage girl, but she's like robot. And uh, that got me reading manga. It was such a striking cover that I saw in like 91 as a poster. And I bought the poster and then started buying the book. And the third pick for a cover and it's covers is 
When Marvel had their Epic imprint, they imported Akira from Japan into U.S. like standard size comic books, as opposed to like the the manga uh, volumes that we we now you know commonly use that are more like Japanese books. But the covers they put on those books were some of the first ones, if not the first books, that had CGI CG coloring, you know, computer graphics coloring, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Otomo, I mean, hands down, I mean, he's another one of those like titans. Like to me, he's a Kirby Frazetta level, like insane. He's not even a great guy. He's like, he's like beyond to like legend of the game. Um, his covers are sick. I mean, he makes you want to stare at a pile of rubble and his covers are amazing uh, for every single issue. So I think there was like 42 issues. Every single one's a masterpiece straight up, hands down. That's awesome, man. Um, and uh, yeah, going back to uh, your first one, um, I mean, it's just such classic Jim Lee. Yeah, I mean, you know the cover I'm talking about. I mean, it's yeah. it, it's it's actually kind of basic because even the coloring, it's it's almost like a five color job. It's like yellow, blue, red, black, yeah. and a couple shades. Like so it doesn't have the more modern. Hey, here's a million uh colors it's it's classic yeah. it's just like it it's it's jim lee is just like if you could just get hit in the face with, with a jim lee image i i think to me that's still it and you know he does a million amazing things but that one still just hits me in the in the heart man that it's just like wow i have a friend in my red room straight out man it's uh it's awesome and i uh, highly recommend any anybody go check out all of those covers but particularly that uncanny x-men 275 if you haven't seen it before um now uh moving on to another one of my uh favorite questions and that is what is the most meaningful comic to you so i'm gonna just i'm gonna say one and it's gonna be one i haven't mentioned before in this interview um heavy metal the magazine march 1989 issue I bought it at a bookstore because I, I was a teenager uh, at the time. I was probably 14. Uh, I just turned 14. And as you get older, you start listening more. And I'd heard about heavy metal, right? That it was this mm. you know, wicked, crazy book that had all kinds of stuff in it that might be a little bit on the edge, a little bit of nudity, a little bit of violence. And I got one. And now that March 89 issue, hands up, and I've got you know probably about 200 issues of that book. It might be to this day still my favorite issue. Um, it was the first one I got, so it's kind of like your first kiss. You don't forget it. But that issue, every single story is great. And there's some dog issues of heavy metal. Let's call it you know, what it is. But it has Leo Roa, which is a Juan Jimenez uh, full watercolored story in it. It's got these kind of brutal outer limits stories about a guy that has to hunt a disabled woman down to kill her in the future because they don't allow disabled people because they drain resources. And that was called like tiger G one. And then the guy gets hit in the face by this woman that he's tracking down who has cancer. And then she hits him and like damages his eye and he kills himself because now he's disabled. And, but it was another European artist. The guy was killer. There's a thing about a factory that cooks people. Uh, just the whole book was just creepy, sexy, super art. And I remember it just hit me like a sledgehammer reading that at 14, like, whoa, this is well beyond the, the Spider-Mans and the Hulks. And, you know, kind of like that next level of like, whoa, this is like what big time European artists are doing and is going to blow your mind Uh, that, you know, nudity, drugs, violence. And it's, it's, it just was like, whoa, like getting hit with a wave of sledgehammer. So, I still remember that issue. It has a Luis Arroyo cover. 
of uh, some girls that are like cybernetic implant girls, but March 89 heavy metal, uh, go get it, man. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a killer. It's a killer issue. That's awesome, man. And what's the most underrated comic that you've read? I think the most underrated comic book that I've ever read it. And I've been on a few podcasts and I've mentioned this and there's people that are like, I've never heard of it. Most underrated hands down book to me is uh, Alexander Yodorovsky and Juan Jimenez. I mentioned him again. Uh, their series Meta Barons, um, which I think could be the most gorgeous comic book I've ever read. And the story is nuts. It takes uh, its foundation from the failed film project, 1972's adaptation of Dune by Alexander Yodorovsky. Um, a lot of his unused ideas are just right in that. So it's kind of a take a little bit of Holy Mountain, take a little bit of Dune and take an artist that is probably on the level of Mobius and mix it together with watercolors for like five volumes. And it is nuts. And I rarely hear anyone talk about it. And I'm even shocked to mention people like, oh, I never heard of it. And I'm like, mm, it's 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 uh, it's 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 unreal. It's it's Shakespeare. It's science fiction. It's artwork you'd see in the ceiling of a church in italy it's it's that level of quality have have you ever looked at it or seen it i hadn't i hadn't and i'm so glad that it's it's now on my reading list <laughs> yeah it should it should be number one on every comic book reader's reader list it, it is it is it, it you're gonna see it and say this this could be the best comic book i've ever seen and yet and yet you didn't know about it either i mean it, i'm telling you it's that good that's awesome yeah, yeah. man and no it just looks gorgeous are you looking up are you looking it up right now yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the first cover right now, and yeah, it looks it looks exciting. And here's the thing: it's 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 just it's not popular, and people that know it will speak about it in the terms I have that it's just unreal. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it it it's do you want to say underrated? That's number one underrated with a bullet right there. It's just it's crazy. I mean, like, look, there's things like Dark Knight Returns that are awesome, and everyone knows it. Watchmen, it's awesome, everyone knows it. And then there's Meta Barons where it's like who? <laughs> it's like dude meta baron and here's the thing juan jimenez passed away last year it, it, it hit me man like he, he died of covid and, you know when he passed away it was interesting because it didn't get a whole lot of fanfare but like high-end comic book people like the real known talents were all like this guy was a titan yeah. because yeah. he's that his his books his art is that good anything that i can pick up that he's done i buy and there's not much. There's very little Juan Jimenez stuff to buy. Um, but I bought collections of his short stories. I bought his collections on Meta Baron. He did a couple like just, you know, full graphic novels, like one shots. Everything he does is great. Yodorovsky is 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 a crazy genius. And if you've never Sam, if you've never seen the documentary Yodorovsky's Dune, probably one of the best probably one of the best documentaries you'll ever see. It is have you ever heard of it or seen it? No, I haven't. It it so you know the book Dune by Frank Herbert, right? So Yodorovsky for like two years worked on putting it to film in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, H.R. Giger, Pink Floyd, Mick Jagger, uh, Orson Welles, um, both this insane uh, Mobius, the the acclaimed French artist, did four thousand pages of storyboards. Wow! And they and they didn't make the movie. Even though, even they spent twenty million dollars, and Yodorovsky never even read the book Dune. That's it's just it's insane. And there's a documentary about this film, and the documentary is insane. And the first time I saw it, I was like, "Wait, 
this sounds like Meta Barons. And then at the very end, he talks about how he took all of his unused stuff and found one and took the guts of Dune 72 and made Meta Barons. And I was like, oh, my. Like, it was just like this whoa moment, having read Meta Barons, you know, originally about 15 years ago or 10 years ago or something. Yeah, it's fascinating yeah. how those things can, can evolve um, but, due to kind of obviously budgetary constraints. Yeah. And things like that. So, so I'm telling you, man, if, if, if you've gotten anything out of this interview, man, to, do your, get, get Meta Barons Volume 1 and, and check out that documentary and just be prepared to have your mind blown because the, the documentary is just outlandish and, and, and then the comic is just this cherry on top that it'll, it'll I keep saying the same phrases, but it'll hit you in the head like a sledgehammer. It's that good. That's awesome, man. Um, now, uh, moving on to our most difficult question, and that is, for you, what is the best comic of all time? Hmm. Well, I'm, so the best comic of all time, I'm, you know, and, and you, were, you, you did a great job, man, sending me questions to prepare to think about. I'm going to go a little off script here. If I had to pick the best comic book of all time, I'm going to say I'm I'm going to go back to one of the things I mentioned before. I think Katsushiro Otomo's Akira could be the best just comic book ever. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, you know, 3000 pages. One man who was just a legend wrote it, drew it. Every panel, every page, every cover is a masterpiece. This guy could draw a quarter page panel of rubble and you want to stare at it. For 3,000 pages, he put that together. And the story has been ripped off, stolen, copied, imitated, and no one can match it. The art is insane. The writing is insane. Uh, it, I don't know that anyone will ever do it. The movie is is as good as the book. It could be the greatest animated movie ever made, Akira, right? Right. Uh, so I, my vote for, for best comic of all time, Akira. And, and hey, fight me, you know what I mean. But I think I think it's right there. Right <laughs> nah, there. for sure, man. It's well deserved. I mean, you could put. I mean, and there's other ones you could pick. You know, you could say Dark sure. Knight. Think you could say Meta Barons. But I man, just best comic. If I had to put a pin on, I, I'd have to say Akira. I, I think Akira could be the best comic. Fair play, man. Fair play. And if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? I would take my first issue of heavy metal back because it's just one issue. I couldn't take all the Akira's. It'd be like carrying a, a freaking brick. But I think if I just had one comic book to read, it'd probably be that March 89 issue of heavy metal. because it's, it's a great issue and it's like my first heavy metal. So I think you can never have that first one back. So I think I would take that one for quality and nostalgia because it, it's, I have great memories of getting it as a kid and hiding it underneath my bed. So my parents couldn't find it, you know? Uh, and, and, and it's a great book. Like I could pull it out now and sit down and read it. It stands up. It's it's still a bang up book, single issue for sure. Nice man. And what weapon, tool, or useful item would you like to take in with you as well? To the apocalypse? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. You know, I would have to say if I had to pick one thing, just if I could have one thing, it would be a Bowie knife that has the end where you grab it has a compass that you can unscrew and then you can put things like matches and, right. and medicine in the handle, right? 
And a knife never runs out of ammunition. You can use it to do a lot of things. You could use it to fight things or kill things. You could use it to, you know, sharpen a stick, open doors. Like, I think a, a handgun might be more powerful, but once you run out of bullets, then it's just a paperweight. So yeah. if I had to pick one thing, it would be one of those, like, utility tracker Bowie knives, just because it has so much multiple uses and it doesn't run out of stabs. Nice, man. Nice. Well, happy to provide you both with uh, that utility Bowie knife and the uh, issue of heavy metal from March. Right, right. If, if my wife was here, she would say, that's for taking the apocalypse, a comic book, a comic <laughs> book. What are you doing? What are you doing? Food and water. Sam said I had to pick a comic book to take. Well, that's stupid. You should take food, right? So she, she would, she was not taking the children to school, she would be here, critique, she would critique your question, then she would critique my answer. And we would both say, okay, we'll, we'll take, uh, what, what are we going to take? Uh, I don't know. Tell, you tell us what to take. Honey. We'll take, take something. Rice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Jason Lennox, thank you so much for sharing your comics for the apocalypse. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, Sam, dude, this is this has been a blast, man. I, I got to be honest with you. The the questions about the comic books definitely put me through my paces uh, as a comic book fan. But I got to tell you, even though it was work, it was kind of fun to actually sit and force myself to think about all these books um, and just to think about all the comic books that I've enjoyed over the years. Because sometimes you, you collect and you get so busy doing a million things that sometimes you just stop to reflect on, you know, you like all these things. Like, it doesn't hurt to think about why do you like them? And which ones do you like the best? And uh, kind of a, a really fun exercise to think about some of this stuff. And if I've turned you on to one or two cool things, that's pretty cool too. Awesome, man. And you know, that's really why I started this podcast in the, in the first place was to, to kind of connect with other comic book creators, but also to, to find out more comics and kind of see where people's likes are and yeah just exploring the world of comics because it is so vast and i will tell you this too um first of all i don't think i've ever been on any anything in the uk so thanks for having me on it's so cool to get out into a new area I, one day i'd like to visit england i've, I've never been there my sure. family is scottish one day i might even like to go to scotland maybe go to comic-con over there sometime and uh, present my books but i love judge dread um i love 2000 a.d um awesome. i love flame i mean those those are like when i think of like uk comics that have like uk flavor man i love i have probably the first 15 years of dread as like the big 2000 ad this is year one this is year two so i have a mountain of judge dread books i love judge dread um it's a great comic i think england did a, just an amazing job of satirizing our country in that book i, I think it's genius <laughs> um i think he is a character that's as cool as batman on every level, I love Dread, um, I lo- and I love 2000 AD, and I love I love Slain. I-, I love I love that property. I love how it takes the English, you know, Celtic, Scottish, Irish mythologies, and you know they've been doing that for a long time. Simon Bisley did an amazing book, so I I just think there's such a rich, you know, there's just a rich, amazing world of comics from from your country that just they they they, they kick my they kick my butt too. I I, lo- I love those books. I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, if you ever if you ever are in the UK, hit me up, man. It'd be great to to catch up. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. It's fun to think about since we're not going anywhere. But you know, maybe when all this stuff breaks, maybe it's one of those things. I, I you know, maybe I, it would be fun for me to come to the UK and do a, a show and an appearance or two, and and go there and shake some hands and 
you know, kiss some babies and, and maybe try to <laughs> build some more fans uh, in, in the UK, man. That would be sweet. Awesome, dude. Well, if you do, hit me up. And then otherwise, I'm, I'm sure I'll see you on Twitter. I, I appreciate it, man. I, I'll see you too. Sam, thanks so much, man. You're a wonderful host and it's a wonderful show. I appreciate you having me on as a guest. It's a privilege. Thanks, brother, and take care. You got it. Thanks again to Jason for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it's helped make other people aware of the show as well. And if you'd like to check out Jason's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene's website at comicscene.org for comic news, the comic club, and other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.